Dissonance Media and the Other Stories presents Step into the abyss of After the Gloaming, a gothic fiction podcast that delves into the depths of human emotion. Unyielding love, revenge, internal struggles, and restless souls await you in nine haunting episodes where dread, fear, and rare glimpses of eerie happiness linger. Dare to listen on your favourite podcatcher? After the gloaming beckons, search now, but beware, innocence will be left behind. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. These aren't the stories your mother told you. No, these are the other stories. <laughs> <laughs> Today's episode of The Other Stories is The Ritual, written by M.C. Romero and narrated by Erica Ventura. Anju awakens to a stentorian chiming issuing from somewhere in her book bag. She finds that she has drooled on her hand while accidentally having fallen asleep during class. Wiping her mouth on the back of her sleeve, she looks around the room in confusion. Her phone chimes again loudly, signaling the automatic end of her recording. Class long over, the windows of the empty room in which she now sits are stained the cornflower blue of early evening. Disoriented, she bends to retrieve her backpack, but stops when she realizes there is a backpack on the floor next to hers. And not just one, either. There are at least a dozen backpacks and notebooks left on the desks and floors around the lecture room. Anjou's tired brain tries to work out what might have happened. Could there be a field trip she did not know about? She looks at her watch and jumps. 7.30! She is a half hour late for work and her boss is not going to be happy. She sweeps her things into her satchel and races out the door to head to work, then home, and then hopefully right back to bed. She yawns and makes for her car. When Anju gets home from work, she finds she is far more tired than expected, afternoon nap notwithstanding, so she decides to work on transcribing the class in the morning. Fishing her phone out of her bag, she realizes that this is the first time she has checked it since discovering her boss's angry messages earlier that evening. 
She deletes the messages without listening to them. She sees this as a kindness, an effortless way to sustain an already strained relationship. After this minor administrative business, she takes herself off to sleep. Anjou is awoken by someone pounding on her door, a herd of someone's, by the sound of it. Again, she is perturbed to see that several hours have passed and it is morning already. Thank goodness she did not have to work, or she would have been late again. She checks her hair in the mirror over the front door lock and it is terrible. But there is no time, at least that is what the volume and intensity of the knocks indicate to her. Annoyed, she throws open the door and sees two portly men standing before her one elderly, the other roughly her age. It is the police, and they ask her to come down to the station. Later, when the police officers ask Anjou what she remembers about Theology 411 yesterday, she must confess that it is almost nothing, since she dropped off to sleep fairly quickly into the lecture. Why? she asks, and they inform her that the rest of her class has gone missing. Even her professor has not been seen since his wife said goodbye to him at 9.15 a.m. the previous morning. In fact, says one of the officers pointedly, we have a witness who states her boyfriend never came out of the classroom. No one did, she says, except for you. Anjou fidgets in her seat. So, says the officer, where did everybody go? As it begins to hit home that she's the only one from her class who is not missing, Anjou shakes her head. What do you mean, where did they go? How on earth would I know? She exclaims. The stenographer, sitting quietly in the far corner of the room, bolts upright in her seat. The officers trade looks before turning back to Anjou. I mean, she says, sounding sheepish. I I only remember to the point where I started to fall asleep, obviously. She licks her lips and asks the older officer, May I have a glass of water? Her voice suddenly has a strangled, epiglottal sound, as though the walls of her throat were closing in on themselves. The older officer nods at the younger man, who sullenly rises and leaves the room on whisper, silent, crap-soled shoes. I got to class early, actually, because I stayed up all night, I guess, and there was a different professor at the front of the class. I remember thinking I should go back to the door and check for a note about a new classroom. But then I saw some fellow students looking around the room, and they looked just as confused as I felt. I don't think that it would normally be a big deal, but our theology professor was never absent. Once I heard he had appendicitis, oh, no, sorry, cellulitis, the classes he missed that week were canceled. She raises her eyebrow and opens her eyes wide to underline the unusual circumstances. The cop's trade looks once again, and Nunju's eyes narrow warily. All I know, she continues, is that I had never seen him before. I would have remembered. She takes a sip of water. I mean, he was huge, super tall, and just, you know big. A big and tall guy. He was wearing blue suit pants and a brown blazer. I remember the jacket had these leather patches on the elbows, like straight off a page of Professor Looks Monthly. He was just 
rocking back and forth on his heels, humming creepily to himself. Everyone else just kept murmuring in surprise and confusion at this remarkable new face. The remarkable was meant to sound sarcastic, but her voice is not strong enough to carry off the irony. She takes another sip of water and continues. The other students? Oh, right, the ones who left early. Yes. Well, as soon as the substitute announced that he'd be sourcing different material than scheduled, most people just packed up their things and left. You see, once they realized that there was no test and a substitute, most felt no need to stay. I'd say about half of them left. She drinks again. So, then he picks up his briefcase and puts it on the desk next to the podium, and then unlocks it with the two of the loudest metallic snap-snap sounds that I have ever heard a briefcase produce. From it, he removes a large rectangular object encased in a velvet crimson-colored pouch. He lets the velvet slip to the desk as he walks the object over to the podium, and we can finally see that the rectangular object is a book. He opens it to the bookmarked page, and without any introduction of himself, and only the slightest preamble regarding the contents of the book, he begins to read it aloud. Actually, it's kind of weird. Anjou continues, her voice husky in the quiet of the interview room. I remember him reading aloud, but I can't remember what he was reading. He told us it was an ancient text on East Asian demonic deities. We've been studying pagan representations of the devil, but in largely Western-based theology, so... She trails off and rolls her eyes up to the ceiling, realizing just how much that was not the point. She adds quickly, Well, it sounded like it'd be good. She looks around once more at the blank faces of the officers and pushes on. That's why I didn't leave. I mean, because I wanted to hear it. I just couldn't make it through five minutes without falling asleep. So she trails off. <sighs> Her sudden gasp startles everyone else in the room. She bends to remove her phone from her purse and holds it up triumphantly. I taped the lecture, she says, and more self-consciously. Like I said, I was up all night studying, so I didn't trust myself to stay awake. Sotto voce, she adds, and I was right. She opens the voice recorder app, pushes the phone across the table to the senior officer, who takes it from her and presses play. At first, there is a faint droning sound, like the buzzing of fluorescent lights from a nearby room. Holding their collective breath, the occupants of interview room B lean towards the speaker. From the tape comes the sound of a huge intake of breath, and then a voice begins chanting. At first, it sounds as though the chanter is speaking backwards English, like the little guy from Twin Peaks but soon it becomes clear that it is in no way an immediately recognizable language. With her finger, Anjou mimes pushing a button to the officer closest to her phone, and he presses the pause button. That's the substitute speaking, she offers by way of explanation. You know, he was a big guy, but his voice was high-pitched, fluty, not girlish exactly, but sonorous, soothing, too soothing, obviously. She looks at the officer, pressing her finger to an imaginary play button, and the officer complies. The droning sound increases in volume, like a counterpoint to the chanting, 
and suddenly, it feels like the floor of the interview room has dropped out beneath the listeners, leaving them suspended and floating in a dark space. At this moment, the young officer, listening with his eyes closed, abruptly leaps out of his seat, jerks his hands up to the sides of his head, and screams. Anjou, also listening with closed eyes, now opens them, slowly, as though hard to do. The moment the chanting began, she had felt an indescribable pleasure, beginning as the faintest tingle in her scalp and blossoming into a cascade of tingles all down her body. More than anything, she wants the feeling to continue, but she turns her gaze on the howling officer. Thick rivulets of blood gush from his ears. Frantically, hands clapped to his head, the young officer desperately hops from one foot to the other as though indicating he has to urinate. The stenographer understands before the other officer and throws open the interview room door with a loud bang. The officer runs out into the hallway, still howling and holding his head as though it might tumble from his shoulders. As the automatic door swings shut behind him, his screams fade and disappear into the screaming sounds issuing from the recording. The sounds of chanting and droning also continue, becoming sibilant now, percussive, the dancing syllables, cries Anjou, her head flung back, expression ecstatic, unseeing eyes fixed on the ceiling. The stenographer collapses to her chair and Anjou closes her eyes. Then came the sound of footfalls too deafening, too massive, too awesome to be designated a sound and not an earthquake. Each footfall is a thundering so immense and gargantuan that even through the recording, the very earth shakes. As one, the stenographer and the senior officer fall to the floor, wailing and pressing their foreheads into the linoleum. As the devastating footsteps and screaming continue to issue forth from Anjou's cell phone, they throw their arms over their heads in a vain attempt to escape the horror. But Anjou rises, head still flung back, eyes milky white, glowing orbs, spilling ribbons of flame as they slowly open and close. Through unparted lips, as from deep within her body, Anjou intones. As though you could hide where I could not find you. And the terrible magnitude of her voice drowns out all sound. The walls of the precinct appear to shimmer, move a step to the left, and then disappear, leaving the denizens of interview room B floating in cold, stygian blackness. The officer and the stenographer look up in time to see Anjou, now incalculably, horrifyingly immense, reach out an enormous hand and pluck them both from their prostration. Her wide-open jaws slaver great gouts of flame for saliva as she closes them around the officer's head. One second, he is screaming in an agony of fear and cowering. The next, he is a headless corpse, disgorging a fount of blood onto the stenographer as she screams and screams and screams. The Anjou Colossus shrieks in wordless joy, and worlds die. Its skyscraper-thick fingers flex, and the stenographer is rendered paralyzed, now able to do nothing more than stare in abject horror at the behemoth as it rises her to its lips. From inside Anjou's throat issues a chorus of lamenting and supplication, the soundtrack of a Hieronymus Bosch painting. 
In her final seconds, the stenographer understands what happened to the class of Theology 411 as she descends to join them whole in the flames burning at the vast center of Anjou. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of The Ever Stories. The Ritual was written by M.C. Romero, narrated by Eric Ventura, edited by Carl Hughes, with music by North Without End and Tom Robson, and sound effects provided by freesound.org. The episode illustration was provided by Luke Spooner of Carry On House. A quick thanks to our community managers, Joshua Boucher and Jasmine Arch, and to Carolyn O'Brien for helping with our submission reading, and of course to Ben Errington for cleaning up the social media streets with his tough, no-mercy approach to content lawbreakers. You can follow MC Romero on Twitter at at StratfordOnGuy and on Instagram at at StratfordOnGuy. Eric Ventura is an artist, mother, bilingual narrator and a husbandry technician. How does she manage it all? No idea, but her artwork can be seen on Instagram at at E-F-E-E-N-T-U or you can visit her artist page on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash bioartsy. The Other Stories is a production of the story studio Hawk and Cleaver and is brought to you with a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. That means don't change it, don't sell it, but by all means share the hell out of it. Until next time.